it's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. Here's my godmommy and civic teachers, L. Joy Williams. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday, indeed. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. Um, And a little person is in my studio this morning. But happy Sunday to you as well. I'm going to get straight to the point. I'm going to get straight to this conversation because there is a book out right now called We Do This Till We Free Us by Miriam Kaba. And it is a reflection on the prison industrial complex abolition movement and provides a vision for the collective liberation of our people. It's by organizer and educator Miriam Kaba. Um, so for all of those who are thinking about, have questions about prison industrial complex abolition, this is the conversation you want to listen to 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 introduce you to the concepts of the abolitionist movement, particularly as it pertains to the prison industrial complex. And I couldn't think of any better person to bring to the front of the class to discuss that than Mariam Kaba. And it is a interview that I have wanted to do for a very long time. And I am so glad that we were finally able to make it happen. But, you know, it's not just enough to listen to the interview. You need to get the book, you need to digest it, and then you need to ask yourself questions and you'll hear Miriam and I describe how we ask ourselves these questions. I personally don't identify myself as an abolitionist, which we'll talk about later, but these are concepts and these are questions that we certainly should be asking ourselves at this time. So before you, you know, hashtag and put stuff in your bio, let's all learn together. And I couldn't think of any better person to bring to the front of the class to begin this discussion. Welcome to the front of the class for the very first time. I'm so very excited about this is Miriam Kaba. She is an organizer, educator, and curator, active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She's also the founder and director of Project NIA, an abolitionist organization with a vision to end youth incarceration, and also the author um, of the new book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Welcome to the show for the very first time. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so very much. You know, I've wanted to have you on the show for such a very long time. (laughs) And when you confirmed, I did a little happy dance (laughs) in my my living room. And, you know, the the, my my, uh, foster kids were like, we don't know why we're happy, but we're dancing. I love it. I love it. There's always this. No, you don't need an excuse to dance. So that's a good right. So they were just like, "Yay, we're happy too, God, mommy." <laughs> so that was wonderful. So since this is your first time, we're going to begin where we begin with every guest for the very first time because I believe in the power of storytelling and how it can move people. So I want to start with you telling us the story of your first civic action. Sure. Um, I think probably um, the first civic action that I ever took was, I must have been either kind of, I'm probably, I probably was like 14 or 13. Um, It was the first time that I attended a protest on my own. 
um, and it was a protest um, against the murder of a young man, a young black man named uh, Michael Stewart. Um, Oh gosh. Yeah. I think that was it. I was, I 13. I can't remember the age, but it was like in my early teen years. Um, and I just remember, um, having heard one of my siblings talking about the situation in the case and, uh, with a friend. And then I heard them talking about this protest that was going to happen. And I decided to just go. And I don't remember why I, I just decided to go on my own, but um, it was something that I think moved me about the story of how the police killed him uh, while he was supposedly tagging um, a subway cart. Um, and that was my first kind of, yeah, I would say my first official maybe civic action, depending on how it is that you define civic action. But I, that's what came to mind. Um, when you ask the question. Mm. You know, that's interesting because, you know, you, you're right that in defining civics, you know, people have different variations. They may think of it as protest, as a number of people do. I remember, I mean, there have been other guests who's talking about, you know, writing a letter to save their library, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. to their legislators, even talking to their legislators at all. I recently tweeted about this story. I was, you know, on Zooms and meetings with elected officials a couple of weeks ago, including Senator Chuck Schumer. And my goddaughter comes in my office to ask me for something. And I pointed to the screen to tell her, I was like, oh, he's a senator. He represents you. And she's like, how does he represent me? He don't even know what I like. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, I have to tell her that was her first civic action. That she was, you know, astute enough to be like, how, how, yes. how did he do that? I mean, of course, she went on to talk about, does he know I like LOLs? Like, you know, so she was a whole um, different piece rather than like, you know, her school or anything like that. But no, was, that, um, that makes such sense. I know I'm trying to think also. Um, about another form of civic action that just came to mind that was um, when I was really young, uh, there were lots of um, kind of, there were some documentaries that were coming out that had um, the story of uh, Ethiopian famine. Mm. Uh, this was, this was like, I think it was pre the live aid portion of things, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but it was in that same kind of tradition. And I remember very clearly what, I think my parents were watching the documentary. I was sitting on the ground. I must've been like maybe seven or eight years old. Um, and it, it must've marked me in some way, um, either listening to or watching the images that were going on. I don't think my parents recognized or realized that I was actually paying attention because I was just playing. Um, but then um, I ended up going downstairs um, to the kitchen really late at night when everybody was already asleep and taking all the food and like everything out of our cupboards and our like, you know, cabinets and putting it onto the table. And I was putting them in bags. 
And my mother, like, I'll never forget this because to her credit, like, as a person who was, you know, a young mother who was overwhelmed, who was working, who had all these, like, competing um, stressors, she came downstairs probably hearing the commotion, worried, like, what the hell's going on? And she sees her daughter, like, unpacking all the food from the cupboards and putting them in bags. And her response was, what are you doing? Like, what's going on, Miriam? And I was like, I was like, well, the I'm taking food and sending it to the kids that don't have any. And mm. instead of like yelling at me and being like, you, you know, put all this stuff back. <laughs> right, right. Night, right. Like, which would be the, the, um, actually, you know, probably the, the, the understandable thing. And now that I'm an adult and I know what it takes to not get any sleep and have all your kids and be all razzled. I'm so shocked at how she was so poised. She just stopped, looked at me and her immediate response was, honey, you can't take all our food and just give it away. Like that just doesn't, you know, that's not going to, what, what are we going to have? We, and also where is this food going to go? We have to figure out a place that would take this food, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she said, listen, I promise you that what we will do is we'll figure out a place that can take food that works with um, children who need it. And we will do that um, on the weekend. We will go shopping to the store, to the supermarket, and we will buy food and we will drop it off to kids that need it. And my mom did it with me, you know, and, um, like it was, I think it, it gave me confidence, first of all, that caring about something wasn't silly or mm-hmm. that my parents, you know, my mother took seriously that I wanted to help and that I needed an outlet to do that. And she worked with me to find a place to do it and then went with me to like fulfill my desire to help. And that probably set me on the path that uh, you know, as much as anything set me on a path to always thinking about what do you do to support other people who are in need? How do you attend to people's suffering? And I just thought about that again, when you were also talking about your goddaughter and, you know, her response to, you know, is this, who's this person representing? They don't even know what I like. Um, that really sparked that, that memory as well. So just wanted to share that. This is why I think storytelling and telling personal experience is really powerful and important, not only in what it invokes in the person telling the story, right? Because you probably, yes, you know the story, but the last time you thought about that, right? Yeah. You know, the last time you thought about that story. And then even in listening to yourself tell the story, you know, there is this, you know, the memory that wells up within you, but then making the connection to, huh, that's where I get this from, or, you know, that's where, you know, the connection. So it's not only the people listening to the story that can be sparked with inspiration, but then the person telling the story as, you know, as you are remembering again, you know, in different stages of your life, right? Because retelling the story as a teenager, as an adult, you know, as a, you know, a 60 something, right? Like, it, you know, it has different levels and different pieces. So that's why I believe it's really important to retell our stories in that aspect. Well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with Miriam Kaba to talk about her new book that's now a New York Times bestseller, but more importantly than a New York Times bestseller, and not that I'm trying to downplay that, is 
what it can teach us. And we're looking forward to the discussion. We'll be right back with more of Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. When Welcome we back to Sunday to Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, and we are talking to Miriam Kaba. I've, I've been looking forward to, and you saw my little video montage I made of the book. <laughs> we do this until we free us, which is abolitionists organizing and transforming justice. And you know, in the current uprisings, because as you know, there are multiple you know waves of uprisings that happen in our tradition. Being an abolitionist is for some people, the new thing to add to who you are, you know, similar to how organizers, you know, what had its moment of people wanting to ascribe to that mantra. But I wanted to give, because, you know, we teach here, I wanted to give you space to talk about being an an abolitionist and sort of what is at the center, at the heart of that term, but also the people who embody that term. Um... Sure. I think the easiest way to talk about prison industrial complex abolition, because that's the that's the type of abolitionist that I am. Um, and there are, you know, different types of abolitionists um, who have a spectrum of political views. Um, prison industrial complex abolition and abolition is a political vision um, it's an organizing strategy and it's um, a practice. So um, in terms of all those things, I think the organizing kind of the vision, basically the political vision of PAC abolition um, is to, mm, it's like a dual project. You know, a lot of times I like to talk about it in that way. It's a project of dismantling um, death-making institutions, including policing, surveillance, and prisons. And it's a project of building life-affirming um, and uh, life-giving institutions that actually support our wellness um, and create real safety for communities. So that's a kind of double, a double project all the time that I like to make sure, because when people think of abolition, they think of only the destruction end or the dismantling end, but it's actually mm -hmm. both and. Um, I think that when I like to talk with folks about PAC abolition, I like to have them think about the idea that we should have everything we need in order to live um, dignified lives. So PAC abolitionists are, you know, pushing for living wages, are pushing for housing for all, are pushing for health care for all, are pushing for um, free education, are pushing for a series of things that would actually um, encourage life over death. That's the 
short end answer of what um, PAC abolition means, um, at least from my perspective. I like that in reading um, just the first essay in the book, so you're thinking about becoming an abolitionist, and you talk about prison industrial complex abolition, which is the PIC abolition, is a vision of a restructured society in a world where we have everything we need, as you were just saying, food, shelter, education, health, art, beauty, clean water, and more things that are foundational to our personal and community safety. And connected to that, like in this moment when, you know, folks are talking about about, uh, abolishing the police or getting rid of the police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I started within my Brooklyn NAACP sphere Mm -hmm. asking people a question. Instead of talking about reform, instead of talking about, you know, what we need to do differently with the peace, can we start from the question of what does it mean to be safe in our community? Yeah. And then if we start from that question. Yeah. And then pull in, okay, what are the things, what are the elements we need? Now, if collaboratively as a community, we decide there's a role for police to play in this new frame, Mm -hmm. that's our decision, right? Mm -hmm. Like in terms of, but instead of starting with police at the center, let's start with safety at the center. Let's start with community at the center and then be able to determine you know, what we need, where we need to pull from in order to move on. Because one of the other pieces I I really like that you talked about is that all that is criminalized isn't harmful and all that is harm isn't necessarily criminalized. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I wanted wanted you to talk more about that. Yes. um, I want to go back for a second and just talk also about um, what you said about putting the police at the center um, of everything. One of the things that I I love the fact that you asked, open up with the question of what is, you know, what is safety and, and how do we increase safety for all of us, right? Like that that is the center of that. Even I think our conversation of the maybe the term safety also has to be troubled now, which is, you know, what what can you imagine as wellness and well-being for our community, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think because safety does bring up in people's mind, um, the, the, the immediate thought goes to security, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that then invokes the weaponization of certain kinds of tools. Um, you know, people think of gates and they think of locks and they think of guns and they think of all sorts of things come to mind. And that is part of what the centering of police and policing ends up being. But one of the the things I've appreciated, um, there's a writer and uh, thinker named Patrick Blanchfield. And Patrick talks about the fact that the police are in our minds as um, uh, a solution not as a problem. And so it's very, very hard if when you ask people, do you want to get rid of the police? Like, if that's the question, then for most people, it's like, absolutely not. It's the first concept that people have is of the police and the cops and policing as basically, you know, a solution. Yeah, a a safety solution and the connection between that and you're right, really getting people to the core is like, let's not talk about what solutions yet. 
Yeah. Let's go back to the core question on what is safety to you? Like what what does, you know, safety mean? Does it mean how are children protected? How are, you know, your body protected? How is the resources that we have within the community protected? Right. So thinking about that larger. And I feel like sometimes people believe that we don't have time to have, you know, they're just like, oh, this is an esoteric exercise. We don't have time for that. And I'm like, no, we do have time. We do. We We need to make space for that, right? Yeah, and we have time for a lot of things, by the way. Or we have time to binge watch on Netflix. We have time (laughs) to, you know what I mean? We have time to dance in our living rooms. We have time to do a lot of things. Um, So, yeah, you know, that's the reality there. Um, Do you want me to talk about the harm or hold off and come back to that? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I want to double down on sort of the because a lot of this has to do with our ability to reimagine and think differently. I'm always frustrated sometimes when I when I do allow myself, which I do frequently, to sort of reimagine something different. I do this in politics now mm-hmm. um, and the economy where, you know, the industries or the concepts that we follow you know, I'm currently at a space where I'm just like, all of that was man-made, right? That's like we right. determined the the, yeah. the intricate things of capitalism, you know, the American economy, like we created that. So what That's is right. to say that we can't create something different? Yes. Right? Like why do we feel rigid in that this man that created this thing, you know, <laughs> eons ago, it must be followed. Like we can't like we can't we can't say, huh, that that maybe there's a different way to do that. And I'm at the space of not only thinking about that in terms of safety, but I'm thinking about that in a larger degree about democracy and about politics in general. Yeah. That perhaps there are there are different ways. I'm thinking about that also in terms of the economy. Right. It was like, yeah, you know, this was set up this way. But why does it have to be that way? Like that's right. some random man or some random woman, you know, or some random person come up with a new frame that's right. you know, that would be more inclusive. Well, it's a what you're doing is a deeply abolitionist practice. Right. Because abolitionists are constantly um, in the land of imagination, because the things that we are imagining and wanting are things that most of us have never seen. Like I never grew up in a time when there were no prisons, but guess what? There was a time when there were no prisons. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a time when there were no police, but guess what? In human history, there was a time without police. Like these are the things that I think when people think, oh, well, you know, this is just the way things are. And I'm like, well, actually, what you've done is naturalize something that is absolutely not natural. And so that's part of our work as abolitionists is to push back against that. And when you were speaking about why, you know, why do things have to be like this? I constantly say, we don't have to live this way. You know, I, like people will, you, this, I say this to family members. I was talking to my niece a couple of weeks ago and she was just so lamenting and despairing about the current situations. You know, she was just saying like, we're just, we're never going to be able to get free. Like she was just so despondent. And I said, that's absolutely untrue. We will. And not only will we, we must. So of course we don't have to live this way. You know, there's a great quote that I really appreciate by um, a person who passed away recently last year, David Graeber, um, a kind of socialist thinker, um, 
and writer. And uh, David said, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. So just, you know, to capture what you were talking about, that's absolutely the case. We don't have to live this way. And I always would love to remind people who tell me things like, this is completely unrealistic, that it's completely unrealistic to cage millions of people, millions of our fellow people. It's, that's completely unrealistic to me. It's completely unrealistic to me to constantly be in a position where we allow for the literal killing of mostly black and brown people disproportionately by an institution we pour billions of dollars a year into and have poured so many trillions of dollars into over the course of our entire you know uh, as as you know over the course of its existence why is that realistic why is it realistic to use our public money and then have our folks shot down in the street. Is that realistic? Like, it's not to me. So I love the idea that you have about playing with imagination and rooting yourself in a place that says, why not? Why can't we think about something different? Of course, our ancestors thought of something different or we wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be here. If they hadn't imagined an end to chattel slavery, which at the time seemed completely natural, and seem like that would be the world that we would always inhabit. You know, Ursula Le Guin's quote about the fact that, yeah, everybody thinks that capitalism is inevitable, but so too did we think the, ru the, the rule of kings would be at a certain point in time. So this, nothing is inevitable. This is silly. You know, what does Octavia Butler teach us about change? That change mm -hmm. is ever present. It is happening all the time. Our lives are ch are change. So I don't I don't understand where people sit when it's always just like that's just the way it is. Shrug of the shoulders. No, it's not just the way. Somebody made it. That means it can be unmade. Yeah. yeah, and you know, in organizing and you know, as you're empowering people with knowledge, you know, as I do about the political process, right. You know, I always talk about the people who are powerful, they see these systems and these tools as they see these systems as tools. Right. It's not something that happens to them. It's something they can wield. That's right. And when you break the mindset that this is just something that happens to you and not that you're also you can be participatory. Yep. You can participate into like it changes the mindset, right? Yep. To know that there are people who are powerful who grow up with that same mentality who are just like, yeah, that's the rules, but it doesn't apply to me. That's yeah, right. that's the rules, but you know, oh, I can just change the law to like to to to, to make it something different, right? Like that that's a mindset that people have that they believe they can just change a law to make it more favorable to them. They can change a policy to make it more favorable to them. And what I try to do with civics and sort of that organizing engagement is to give you to empower you with that same belief. Yes. Right. That this, yes, this is the structure. I'm teaching you the structure, right? This is it because you need to know how it works and how um, it exists so that you can, you know, participate in it. But I also want you to be empowered to know that you can also break it. Mm -hmm. Right. You can dismantle mm -hmm. it. Right. And, yeah. and as you're, as you're going to that, but I'm going to take a quick break here and then we're going to talk about 
I, again, and I, I've already underlined it in the book. And sorry, authors, if you send me a book or if I buy your book, yes, I'm breaking the, <laughs> I'm breaking the binding, I'm highlighting, I'm underlining, I'm doing all of the things. That is the sign or mark that you you, you have a good book. But yeah. we'll take this, <laughs> we'll take this commercial break really quick, and then we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. How can it be? Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And with us at the front of the class is Miriam Kaba, the author of We Do This Till We Free Us, an organizer, educator, founder and director of Project NIA. And I highlighted and underlined this phrase, and I might even do like a a canvas art project on this, Miriam. All that is criminalized isn't harmful and all harm isn't necessarily criminalized. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Well, you know, criminalization is a is a man-made process. We decide um, what it is that we think is outside of the quote-unquote societal norms. And, and, you know, a lot of societal norms are sometimes codified in law, but a lot of norms are not codified in law. Um, and just because you, quote, break the law doesn't mean that the the thing that is being criminalized is itself incredibly harmful. And so examples of that, I always think about the, the way that, um, for example, in our society, um, companies engage in um, blatant wage theft consistently all the time um, to the tune of billions of dollars a year that workers lose as a result of wage theft. Um, And this is not criminalized. So, you know, nobody's going to jail for doing it. Um, But it's incredibly harmful because people lose their livelihoods and don't make enough money and are struggling as a result of it, right? That's an example of something that is not criminalized, but is very, very harmful. Um, You know, a lot of, you know, uh, dumping toxic waste in rivers is legal in a lot of places. Um, Just the cost of doing business doesn't mean that that isn't deeply harmful to the uh, community. Um, We for example, um, have criminalized people having possession of drugs. But there's a whole list of drugs that are actually just not criminalized whatsoever. Um, People taking painkillers that are very, very, like that basically are opiates, but those are completely fine. Those aren't criminalized. But if you, you know, in some places take a blunt somewhere, um, then you're criminalized for having the possession of that. It's arbitrary, right? It, it's arbitrary, it's socially constructed. It's some, you know, it sometimes has zero um, relation to how much actual harm it causes to people or to communities. And so I always think I, you know, when I teach classes to students, um, in the when I'm in the classroom, I always want to give my students ask them to list out all the things they know of that they think are harmful 
that don't aren't against the law and then a bunch of things that they think are against the law that they don't think are actually harmful and we always come up with a really robust list and i then ask them to think about what what the you know why those particular things were actually criminalized like what was the process through which somebody determined that those things ought to be criminalized um, and we often then link that to well it depends sometimes it depends on the population that's using that stuff right if it's mostly poor black people you can bet that it'll likely be criminalized if it's rich white men cis men you're likely to think that it's not going to end up in the criminal realm right? Like the harms aren't going to be seen the same way. So it's a way to really contextualize harm. Um, and as abolitionists, PIC abolitionists, we um, are trying to get to the sources and the roots of violence. That's a huge part of our um, politics and in, of our practice. And so the reason we're abolitionists, PIC abolitionists, is because we know that prisons, policing, and surveillance are deeply harmful even if people think they're necessary institutions, they're deeply harmful institutions. They're not neutral institutions, right? And so because they're deeply harmful, we care about uh, eliminating them. We care about creating something different. Um, so that's, I always try, try to explain things in that way to people that for me, the unit of concern is harm and relationships. Those are the things that I care about the most as a PIC abolitionist. And so I care about all types of harms, not mainly the ones that are criminalized. I care about wanting to address when people are hurt, right? Because at the bottom of that, when people are hurt, it engenders a series of needs and those needs deserve to be met regardless of whether or not they're considered criminal or not. Um, and so that's the that's kind of the frame that I hold as it relates to that question. So the other piece, and in, in, in then I want to talk about sort of the stages in terms of where people are. But one of the other pieces in the book is uh, moving past punishment, that accountability is not punishment. So another thing I've said on the show, I think we had a whole show on this, was justice isn't reserved for just the well-behaved. And continuing on that same thread that we have, even for victims' families, like we have told people that, and we've internalized that justice means somebody is being punished. Yes. And that punishment is you being locked up. Yes. That punishment is your death. Yeah. That punishment is, you know, all those kind of things. And we know that, and I've known for some people, and I'm not going to say for all, mm -hmm. that, but that for some people, just a person who has harmed you or harmed a family member going to jail isn't enough for your healing, isn't mm -hmm. enough. It's sort of disconnected sometimes from that piece. And, you know, you may have the exclamation of, oh, yes, they're serving their time. They're going to be held accountable by going to jail or by, you know, paying the punishment or any of that. But it's still not, it's not whole mm -hmm. in terms of what is accountable. And just as we said, there is this connection that we have with safety and the police providing safety. We also have that ingrained in our society and ingrained in us personally, that in order for people to be held accountable in order for me to have some justice, someone has to go to jail, someone has to go to prison, or someone has to die. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. This is a very hard, this is a really hard thing to talk about um, because it's so deeply personal and it's so deeply tied to our emotions and our feelings. And um, as human beings, we are so overwhelmingly focused on um, like vengeance because vengeance feels good. Mm-hmm. If somebody hurts you and harms you grievously and you fantasize about horrible things happening to them, that's actually a very human feeling. It's a human reaction. Um, and and it, and it sometimes can feel really good, right? Because you feel terrible and you want bad things to happen to other people. More than that, you want other people to suffer in the way that you suffered or worse. And what we have in our society is an inequality of suffering in the sense of um, certain people are punished for things that happen to certain people and other people experience something that's akin to impunity, which is that when they're harmed, um, (laughs) which is that when they're harmed, um, people don't take it seriously. And so they don't get the same kind of like people rallying around them and saying like, you deserve to be able to have justice and whatever. And so it feels like another kind of a deep cut and a slight to say like, and you're not really allowed to demand that this person be punished. Like that just feels like too much for people. But as abolitionists, we know that punishment and accountability aren't the same thing. That to punish someone is deeply passive, but it doesn't require the person to do anything. You know, everything is done to that person. Um, it's at the mercy at, in, in most cases, if it's not like handled in an intra-community way, it's at the mercy of the state. And the state decides very much in a kind of um, unequal way how to apply punishment and to what and to whom and for what reasons. And so people are left unsatisfied in the way that I talked about earlier. Accountability asks people to take accountability. You have to like be engaged in that. It's an active process. It's a process through which a person decides, like knows the difference between right and wrong and knows they've done wrong. And more than that, kind of commits to wanting to change their behavior and to wanting to repair harm. It's a really hard thing to be accountable. That's like self-accountability is the, it's just the hardest thing. We most of the time run away from it. We don't want to engage with it, which is why it's so much more seductive and easier to rely on punishment, which is a passive thing you impose on other people, a pa- you know, a passive action that you impose on people and you insist that they suffer for it. But PAC abolition really asks us to rethink that as a way of being. Um, and that's really hard. Um, that's really, really hard for folks. Um, and I understand why it's hard. Just because something's hard doesn't mean that it isn't worth doing. And so um, that's, you know, that's what I have to say about that. It is very hard. And the accountability and even as you are exploring, 
you know, where your ideas come from, even as we're talking about my own evolution, it's part of the reason I don't outwardly, frontly say, I'm an abolitionist and yeah. I'm a, you know, because I may be on a journey to that. Mm-hmm. But to me, proclaiming myself as that also comes with, you know, a person saying that comes with a certain level of responsibility in terms of where you are. And so that, you know, I may be on a journey to that way. And I certainly believe that I am. There are concepts I'm exploring, reimagining, breaking within myself, breaking whatever, you know, but, I, you know, I think there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with naming yourself something and particularly to community, particularly as a leader, right? There is, there is accountability in leadership. There is, if you say you are one thing and you are a leader, like there's a way you have to walk, you know, publicly as you are ascribing to that. And so I'm very careful of how I name myself, particularly as a leader or describe. And, you know, in the book, you um, list out some concepts you know, that if we're going to try to transform society, we have to transform ourselves, right? Yeah. We have to imagine an experiment um, with new structures. At the same time, we have to think about sort of dismantling these pieces. And, you know, I, I think that's important to note that people, you know, sometimes can be reductive in saying it's either you're an abolitionist or you're not. And it's not as simple as proclaiming it that way. And how we have to provide grace to people, right? Mm-hmm. That these are concepts that you've grown up with all your life. It's like sometimes, you know, I say this about if my grandmother's 95 and helping her break and understand one concept that she's lived with for 95 years, that's hard, Yeah, <laughs> you know, to, to do that. Yeah. And I wasn't always an abolitionist, of course. How could I be? I grew up in this society. You know, I came to abolition. It was a process of learning and unlearning. Um, and it's been, you know, I, I came to this idea 20 years ago, but before then I wasn't an abolitionist at all. I grew up in the same land of punishment, of uh, the police are the only thing that could exist. Of course, we had prisons and needed them. Like, you know, so I, I, I don't I don't offer grace to people because I'm I'm higher than they are. I, ha- I offer grace because I understand that people offered me grace. And I understand that people also took time to explain things to me and that I had to wrestle and struggle with things. And there are things I still struggle with. So I'm very cognizant of that. I'm also cognizant of the fact that abolitionism is a politic, right? And an organizing strategy and a practice. It's not an identity. So you are always going to be in a position of becoming something, of learning, of growing. This is just normal. And you mentioned before the concept that I think is really important, which is that the systems we're trying to dismantle, they don't just live outside of us. They also live within us. And that's a constant struggle of, you know, of of iterating new ideas, of unlearning so much of the stuff you got taught as a kid um, and you got reinforced through schooling and that are reinforced through the media like to change, change your mind, to be different, to consider differently is work. Like it's an everyday process of fighting against all the things that would have you be focused on. I mean, think about how much you've watched cop shows in your life. Think of how many different kinds of cop shows you've watched. Think of turning on the television at any point in day in Law and Order or Chicago PD or Dragnet or 
like all the ways that law enforcement is completely subsuming your every day. How would you not think of officer friendly, even if your experience is of officer demon, right? Like you are not, you're just completely subsumed in that. And people who say to me, I, I, you know, I work with young people, so I've always heard people that, well, I'm not influenced by any sort of commercials. I'm like, honey, you're you you're you're looking at ads every single day. Your desires are conditioned by that. The reason you want those shoes is because you saw them somewhere, even if they were on your friend's foot. That's advertising. Like you know, like you can't escape that stuff. So yeah. I fully have a lot of grace and understanding and um, empathy for folks who are on a journey of unlearning and relearning new things um, all the time, because I always feel like that's what I'm doing. You know, that's what I'm doing every day. Well, I, I, I've started this practice and, you know, this is what I've suggested to folks, you know, that even as you're saying, I say this to myself, and even as someone who, you know, teaches people, learn the system to figure out how to dismantle, I'll give you an example. The, first iteration of um, in recent years, people talking about, we need to get rid of the electoral college, right? Mm -hmm. The first trained political scientist in me, right? Went to school for political science, sort of, and it was just like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> if you do that, then the smaller states, look, how will they balance? People will just campaign to California and New York. And, you know, like I was, because mm -hmm. again, I had been trained to school, just like, oh no, this is a balance. And yes, it has racist, you know, undertones, but people will just campaign to where most of the population is and what that's unfair to states or whatever. And then I had to do again, the relearning is just like, just because that is a system doesn't mean we can't create something new. So yes, mm -hmm. we can abolish the electoral college. Yes, we have to create a structure that sort of creates balance for smaller population states, but joy it doesn't mean that we don't have to dismantle the, you know, electoral. Yeah. But that was a part, like, that was me questioning inner joy who has been trained as a yeah. political scientist to think outside of what was created, right? That's right. Um, it's hard. And, and, it's and, hard. and it's the practice of, yes, my gut reaction is we can't do that. That's but then right. after you do that, even, and that's going to be natural. It's going that's to be right. natural to say, we can't do that because this is how this is supposed to be. Yeah. After you get that out, yeah. the next is step is, but can we? Yeah. Yeah, we can. <laughs> okay. So let's so then let's figure out what the other process mm -hmm. process is while also dismantling this thing that we know, you know, isn't working. You know, disenfranchises people. Or in the instance of policing, right, we know this doesn't work. That's right. Um, we know we need to change it. So we can dismantle that while also building. And That's just, right. you know, lastly, I want to give you that point again that you said from the beginning, you know, that this is not, you know, this is a concept. Yes, it's about dismantling, but it's also yeah. about building. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and what do uh, we know? We know from Kwame Ture, one of our, my favorites, um, you know, that, Concept like that revolutionaries don't constantly just be just talk about destruction um, and dismantling. That to be revolutionary is to think about creation and building. Um, that both have to happen in order for us to get closer to liberation. And I believe in that very very strongly. And that is 
a huge part of being a PIC abolitionist. And, you know, I invite people to learn more about it um, and to make decisions for this themselves about what it is that maybe they can see the world just a millimeter differently as a result of hearing this and maybe reading the book and, you know, figuring out for themselves where they stand. Um, I think one of the most important things we can do is to embrace ideas that may feel initially uncomfortable to us. Um, and yeah, and be in a place where we uh, think of something different. It doesn't have to, we do not have to live this way. We don't have to live in a country where a thousand people a year are killed by the police. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live in a country where 2.3 million people are locked up in prisons and jails. That's just obscene. We don't have to live this way. We don't have to live in a country where the minimum wage is $7.25. We don't have to live this way. We don't have to live in a country where we're going to die because the planet is being destroyed through the, the, the neglect of our politicians and the greed of our corporations. We don't have to live this way. So I hope that people take that away from this conversation today. Um, that imagination and creativity matter, that I hope people take their own intellectual journeys, but also become practical, ap you know, applicants of a different restructured, transformed society. It's what we need. It's what we need. Thank you so very much, Miriam Kaba. Get the book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. Whatever stage you are at your journey, picking up this book and starting again with the, so you think you're becoming an abolitionist. And, you know, and I invite you, as Miriam mentioned, to just reimagine what you're, what you're thinking. And it's, it's a practice that you can do in all aspects of your life, not just in political movements and social movements, but even in your, your life as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so very much for taking time, Miriam. We love having you here on Sunday Civics. Thank you so much for inviting me again. And I was so happy to join you. Thanks to everybody. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Thanks for listening.